Thanks, Joel. Now, does anyone know who wrote that song? Martin Luther. Does anyone know what psalm it's based on? None? Uh, uh, 46th, I think. What? 98. See, this is why we need to hear more about Martin Luther. All right, well, before I start, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Martin Luther and his wife, Lord, and we pray that you um, would help us to see in their lives, in their marriage, in their ministry, uh, a model of Christianity, Lord, that we ought to imitate, and that by the power of your Spirit, we do. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Amen. So um, in discussing what I was going to talk about with the elders, one of the things um, that was suggested is that I talk about various reformers, specific reformers. And so I set out actually to, to talk about the leading magisterial reformers, which I'll explain in a second. But it, I don't have enough time to talk about Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, and Thomas Cramner in one go. I mean, I could, but we would have had to k- cook more food. <laughs> so I, what I'm going to do is explain the magisterial reformation and what that is specifically. Because when we say the Reformation, it's actually misleading. The Reformation was a multifaceted thing. Uh, like when you say World War II and everybody thinks of Normandy, World War II was a much, much more complicated event that took place all over the world. And so the Chinese, in, in their experience, was very different than the French in their experience. So the Reformation is very similar. And the, the Magisterial Reformation specifically is, is its own wing. And, and so for the coming years, I'm actually going to just go through uh, the magisterial reformers. And, and in my opinion, they're the most important. So the magisterial reformation is the branch of Protestant reformation with closer links to civil government. And this is, what ma- this is why we call it magisterial. Magistrate is a government official. And so the magisterial reformation and, it, and, and the reformers interacting with the governments of their nations and city-states uh, those were the leaders. When you think of the Reformation, when you think of reformers, those are the people you think of. Uh, Zwingli uh, died in Strasbourg in battle defending his city. Calvin uh, was closely united with the city council of Geneva. Martin Luther was protected by the German princes because he was a super fanboy. People don't realize he was uh, kind of a statist before it was cool. And he was closely united with the government of his country. Thomas Cramner was the archbishop. He, he's the kind of the leader of the English Reformation. And he was the archbishop of Canterbury, which is a political appointment, not a religious one. In, in, in late medieval times, uh, the archbishop of Canterbury, I understand he's a bishop, but he actually, it was a political appointment. And he had a lot to do with Henry and his divorces and whatnot, and he hated the Catholic Church so much, Thomas Cramner, that he would uh, he sanctioned illegal divorces by Henry because he hated the Catholics so much. Uh, we'll cover him in four years. It'll be great. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about, pro- like, arguably, as a Calvinist, I have a hard time even saying this out loud, but it's a secret maybe about me, is that Luther is my favorite. I love him. Uh, I, I almost have considered becoming a Lutheran simply because of him. Uh, even though Lutheranism has nothing to do with him. (laughs) 
Uh, modern day Lutheranism really does everything to do with Martin Luther. Uh, but I am a huge fan. So he was born in 1483. He died in 1546. And we're going to talk about him. One, one last thing I say before I just launch into the story of his life is my sons and I have been talking a lot about the Renaissance and how it did, doesn't actually exist. There's no such thing as the Renaissance. It, it's something modern um, historians have created to understand a series of events. Uh, but what, what it does is it completely divorces what happened from actual history. So in 1514, Leonardo da Vinci and Raphael, the famous artists, right, were the ones constructing the cathedral in Rome that Martin Luther was angry about them raising funds for in Germany. So the Reformation and the Renaissance are actually two ways of describing the same period of time. Humanists love to talk about the Renaissance and how they discovered the classic period of art and, and uh, human understanding and reason. And, and the reformers talk about the fact that we, the, those theologians found the classical period of theology. Well, everybody at the same time in the same century in Europe were discovering texts because of the Crusades that they had never seen before. Uh, the Crusaders came back with texts of Aristotle, texts of science, texts of literature, texts of uh, chemistry, all these things that the Europeans had never had before. And this started something that covered every area of life. Okay, so Raphael and, and da Vinci were, were sons of the church. They were, they were Catholics, Roman Catholics, and they were working at the same time that Luther was working. An another example of this is Titian. If you know who he is, he's, he's a big deal in art. And his, one of his last masterpiece was painted the same year that Calvin finished the Institutes, and that's not an accident. Uh, this, this masterpiece, which it is, and this masterpiece happened in the same year in 1559 because these men were influenced by the same thing, the, the restoration of something that was lost in Europe or never known in Europe since the fall of Rome. This is almost turning into a completely different talk. I, I did tell my boys not to go into their Providence history classes and tell their, their teacher there that the Renaissance doesn't exist. Um, it's something we simply talk about at home. Okay, Martin Luther. Martin Luther. He was the son of a miner in Saxony, a very successful miner. His father owned several mining uh, operations. It, he, wasn't, he wasn't just a man who dug in the ground. He owned mines, and he was very wealthy, and he wanted his son to be even wealthier and more powerful and so he sent him to three, uh, two colleges and the Erfurt University. So he went to two colleges and then the university. He was going to have a very lucrative profession in the law. His father paid for all of that, set him up. It's a similar story to Calvin. Calvin was being trained to be a lawyer. It's not an accident that they are both magisterial reformers with their background in the law. When I wanted to be going to the ministry, part of why I chose the law as a secular profession was because I thought if it ever, if it ever broke out into reformation, I would be prepared. Little did I know. So while travel, traveling one day uh, to a pub to meet his friends, uh, he was, Martin Luther was caught in a storm. And, and this actually, um, people say this is mythical, but this part isn't actually mythical. Uh, he, he was frightened by lightning. He was a very terrified soul. He was afraid of God. He was afraid of death, like most unbelievers. And so when lightning uh, nearly struck him, it struck a tree near where he was, he, he threw himself to the ground and prayed to God that if he was delivered, he would become a monk. Uh, being delivered, he then quickly joined the monastery. 
and his father took many years to forgive him. His father really had a hard time getting over it because it, all that money he spent on his education to become a lawyer, to help him have even more lucrative minds, kind of went to nothing. So in Erfurt, in 1505, he became a monk. He was ordained a priest in 1507 because the Augustinians are not just monks, they're priests. That's what they do. They instruct people in the word of God. Friars are a different kind of order, and what they do is they go around and beg money and do works of charity and this kind of thing. Um, Benedictine uh, monks, uh, are they're, they're farmers, usually lawyers, this kind of thing. But the Augustinians are priests. So priests in the late Middle Ages usually were Augustinians. So in 1510, Martin was sent to Rome by his order on business because he was unhappy in his profession, and they thought that this would help him. And it did help him, but not in the way everyone thought. Uh, he saw the whorehouses where the priests and cardinals were visiting. He saw the, the just absolute disgusting corruption of Rome at the time and the aphorists, and, and he was completely turned against the church at a very early age. And I think this is partially why he became a nationalist. Uh, um, uh, German Christians are not the same as Italian Christians. Italian Christians are corrupt. Italian Christians are gross. Italian Christians should be... Uh, should have nothing to do with the German church. The German church can be completely separate from this because he goes back to his order in Germany where they're all Germans and they're all faithful and obedient. So for him, this, the, the Roman Catholicism versus Protestantism actually has a lot to do with his being German. He's, he's the father of European nationalism, Martin Luther is, and most people do not know that about him. So after he returned from this this trip, which taught him a great deal, he was made the uh, he went to Wittenberg, and he became the doc. Uh, he received, I, I'm sorry, a doctorate in theology. And in those days, a doctor of theology was an office in the church. Um, so, say there's three CRC churches here. If it was the Middle Ages, what we would do is hire a PhD who would be the police of our theology. Uh, we would hire him. The three churches would pay him, and he would make sure that we all teach and preach the things that are correct. And so Martin Luther was this. This he was a doctor. He was the one who not only taught pastors and priests theology and the original languages, he was also somebody who was in charge of making sure theology was good. This is, this is something people don't understand about the Middle Ages and all the controversy that comes. He was always doing exactly what he was hired to do. His whole career was about making sure people were following the Bible and the canon law, and that led to a great deal of controversy in his life. So after receiving his doctorate in theology, he became a professor of biblical exegesis at the university faculty there, and then went on. They started a new university at Wittenberg. It was all the rage in the late Middle Ages, because when you're talking about Luther, you're not talking about the modern time, you're talking about the Middle Ages. It was all the rage in the late Middle Ages to found universities. So he was a very prestigious doctor, uh, and they hired him onto the faculty there. Okay, so in 1515, this is another thing about him people don't know, he was made a vicar of his order, uh, which in the order he was in, I'm not going to get too much into this, it was a, it was a different section of monks. You, you actually, you would be a monk at one place, and you'd be in charge of up to 11 monasteries in other places. So this is another thing about him. He was in charge of a lot of people. Uh, before he ever became a Protestant. He was in charge of 11 different monasteries. He was in charge of their funds. He was in charge of their theology. He was in charge of the, the rites that they took. He was in charge of everything about them. So he had a lot of control, and he already had a lot of connections before he ever became a reformer. Now, through his uh, rigorous studies, Martin came to believe that man is unable, unable in any way to respond to God without God first um, 
taking control of us through his grace, right? God has to first come and, and, and change our hearts before we're able to receive anything from him. It's in, man isn't capable of responding to God unless God makes us capable of responding to him. This was how the whole, <laughs> this is really where all of his problems started. So works or religious observations are irrelevant. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what, what order you're in. It doesn't matter. If God hasn't made it so that you can respond to him, you're not going to respond to him. Uh, which sounds a lot like Calvinism, but ladies and gentlemen, this is the Reformation we're talking about, and all of the Reformers on some level are Calvinists. <laughs> and this is before Calvin was converted, but you understand what I mean. They were all Calvinists because they were all Augustinians, essentially. Okay, so in a later autobiographical fragment, Luther indicated that his theological breakthrough was linked specifically to his, his reading in the original language, Romans 1.17 where it talked about the righteousness of God that's imputed to us. So there's a righteousness that God has, and he gives it to us. We do not, there's no other way to get it. And, and that was the basis of his whole theological program. We can't receive this unless it's given to us. Okay, so during the period of 1515 to 1519, Luther consolidated his doctrines of justification, emphasizing that justification was a work of God within man, not man on his own behalf. In many respects, his theology of justification echoes Augustine, right? The, the Reformation existed because everybody was capable of reading Augustine in Latin. That, that's really what happened, okay? This, just like perspective was suddenly discovered by Renaissance artists because they all discovered something that had been lost from the period of the ancients, Augustinian works were suddenly found, and everyone read them, and lo and behold, they all became Calvinists. That's a joke. All right, in April 1517, Karlsdat, uh, he's a very controversial guy. I'm not ever going to do a talk on him. He's kind of a dirtbag. But there was a period of time where he was a good guy in this story. He was the dean of the faculty, and he was very angry with Luther, and he debated Luther in front of the faculty and was converted to Lutheranism, and the entire faculty was converted to Lutheranism uh, but through, through his response to Luther. So then you have not just Luther, this theology of his was becoming very popular in the, in the kingdom in Germany that he lived. So he converted all of his friends and relations and, and, and colleagues before he converted anybody else. So Wittenberg Faculty of Theology were all committed to this program. So the Reformation is, in many ways, as I've said, reclaiming and developing the theological work of Augustine. Okay, Augustine is the most important theologian outside of the New Testament to have ever lived. And there, you're either with him or you're not. You're either working off of what he started or you're not. And I would, if I ever had to write a PhD paper, I would probably write it on that. We're all Augustinians or anti-Augustinians. Okay, so in, on the 31st of October, 1517, Luther nailed uh, 95 theses and, and a thesis is just simply like a, a statement of fact. He had 95 of them. It was largely about indulgences, and he posted it on the castle church door. Does anyone know why he would post it on the church door? I mean, there's, there's a lot of images of him walking up and, like a punk rocker and spray painting on something that ought not to be spray painted on. And, and I think a lot of young, restless, reform guys tend to think that's what he did. He's spray painting on the Wittenberg Castle Church, but that's, that's not what happened. Does anyone know why he would do that? Why the front door of the church? It was a bulletin board. There you go. If you're looking for your cat, okay, if you're looking for your cat or you have a job to offer or you're, you're looking for, to sell some books or you want to start an international reformation of the entire church, 
uh, you just want to let everyone know you'd nail things to the door because everyone has to look at the door when they're going to church because the 1st of November is All Saints Day. And All Saints Day was a huge holiday in the Middle Ages. It still should be, but I digress. And that is where you celebrate not a saint, but all of the Christians who ever lived. It's like a day of just like, we are the people of God. Aren't we awesome? Isn't he awesome because we're awesome? This is great. We love everybody. And so everybody goes to church. It's, it's like, it was like Christmas now. You know how cultural Christians even go to church on Christmas? All Saints was something everybody who said, even said they were a Christian went to. So he was trying to get noticed. So some other people read it, and it was supposed to be for a disputation where you just have a debate, a public debate. But they took it down, they published it, and they passed it around, and it was some hot tamales that they were, <laughs> they were passing around. So he really was attacking the sale of indulgences. Now, theologically, his problem wasn't with indulgences necessarily yet. Okay, This is also something people don't understand. He was developing his theology. What he didn't want was German money going to Italy. That was his first problem. I don't want hard-earned German money going to Italy to build a church none of us are ever going to attend. I would rather they keep the money in Germany where we build churches we actually go to. Now... Then, in the argument about indulgences, he had to do his homework, and then he was like, why are we even doing this indulgence thing anyway? It's stupid, right, and wicked and evil. And so it's really funny how his response, he would say perfectly Augustinian things, and it would make a bunch of people angry, and then he would have to go and check if he was right, and by checking if he was right, he would find out how wrong everyone really was. And this happens to Luther on accident almost throughout his entire career. At one point, they accused him of being a Hussian, John Hus, he was a... You know, and he was like, I can't say that I am. I have no idea who that is. And so he went that night and read all of the works that he could find on Hus. He came back, he's like, you're damn right I am. <laughs> and it's, it's important to note at that time, Hus was burned. Uh, he, he, was, he was told he was going to have safe passage. He was brought to his trial, and he was killed. Uh, and he had never heard of the guy, and he was like, oh, I'm totally down with that guy. And Hus is actually referred to as one of the precursors of the Reformation. You don't get to the Reformation without Hus. And Luther was like, I am all in. Okay. So he puts out these theses for a public debate. They go to Heidelberg, which if you've heard about, that's later where the Heidelberg Catechism uh, would be written in Germany, 1518. They have this disputation where they have a debate, and there is a Dominican friar there watching named Martin Bootser. He watches the debate, and he himself is converted to Lutheranism and becomes a reformer himself. But he absolutely hands uh, Cajetan, who's the cardinal there, to debate him his lunch. Uh, he owned that guy, and he would go on to own pretty much anyone he ever had a public debate with after that, including the emperor. So he wins this debate, and not only that, he wins over Martin Bootser, he wins over all kinds of people. Uh, but um, in the same year that he was tried, uh, in, in his absence, I might add, they didn't even bring him in for his trial. They had a trial, he wasn't even there in Rome, on charges of heresy, he was summoned again before Cardinal Cajetan, who had already smacked down in a public debate, and refusing to recant, he fled to Wittenberg under the protection of the German princes. Okay? He was a friend of the German princes, and they were his friend. That is why he lived. If he had not had such high, important people surrounding him who supported him, he would have never lived, and we would have never heard of him. Okay. So in 1520, his reform program was consolidated. Then what uh, it happened is that um, he began to challenge things. He, he challenged the pope himself, general councils, the cardinals. And if you are a poor peasant in Germany and you see a man throwing off the hierarchy of medievalism, 
You're like, I don't have any authority above me but scripture itself. What might you do if you're a feudalistic peasant in Germany? You might say, well, I, I don't have any authorities over me either. <laughs> and this happened so many times. People thought that he was a populist, Luther. They thought he was for them, but he was not for them. He was for the lesser magistrates. He thought German princes should rise up against the emperor, not peasants. And so he, there were continually these peasant uprisings that Luther would write to the prince and say, put them down like dogs. And so lots of people were murdered uh, at the behest of Luther, actually. Uh, so you know the Marxists like to say that he's like the first democracy. Uh, no, he hated that idea. Uh, he, he hated rebels, which is funny because he's like the biggest rebel who ever lived. And I think this is the really dark side of Martin Luther. He, he would encourage all kinds of rebellion, and then he would have the rebellions put down with a sword. Okay, so he was called before the Diet of Worms. It's Worms, not Worms. I know that that's sometimes confusing for people, but it's Worms. He was, he was brought there, and he was told to recant, and I'm going to read what he said now. Okay, this was his response in front of the emperor of Rome and the legats of the pope. This is what he said. He said, since your most serene majesty and your highness require of me a simple, clear, direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the pope or to the council because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency within themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from holy scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For if it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his own conscience. Here I stand. I can do no otherwise. God help me. Amen. Well, they decided to put him to death <laughs> after he did this. But his, the princes who were his buddies kidnapped him, actually. Uh, they, there was this raid on him when he was returning to Wittenberg, and they kidnapped the man and stowed him away in a castle. And everyone thought he was murdered. Everyone thought that the pope had done this. Everyone was writing against the pope, and how dare you murder this innocent man. And it was really his own friends who kidnapped him. And then, like, uh, I think the moms would understand this, okay? He was given an extended period of time of quiet, in which he had the most fruitful, it was the most fruitful work he ever accomplished. <laughs> so he, he was rescued from the Reformation for long enough to translate uh, the Bible into German. And he wouldn't have been able to do that if he wouldn't have had those times to study where it was just literally him in a high tower. Uh, his, he, he had um, an alias, Junker George was his alias, uh, which I've used as, as an as a alias myself a number of times because it's hilarious, Junker George. And he grew a beard. He, he was a knight, whatnot. So he, wrote, he, he translated the Greek and Hebrew into German, creating modern German. And all of the modern languages, English, German, French, Swiss, Polish, every single modern Western language was developed from the, the reformers translating the original languages into their own vernacular. And that is universally true. Modern English was invented by those men who gave God an English accent, as one book about Tyndale called it. Right? So, so God, uh, Martin gave God a German accent, <laughs> which is very, yeah, if God ever came to me and said, show me your papers and, and with a German accent, I'd be very nervous. Okay, so while he was having this extremely fruitful period of time, my jokes sometimes are not funny, um, what was going on is Carl's dad, that windbag, 
uh, had taken over Wittenberg and was creating unbelievable chaos and was one of the founders of what they call the radical or the radical reformation is, is what they call it. So they were people who thought we should throw off every earthly uh, example of, of authority in every way. There, there's no popes, there's no presidents, there's no kings, there's no princes, there's no church, there's no taxes, there's no nothing. Uh, throw off all of society and completely start over again. And that's the radical reformation. They're also called Anabaptists, and that, my ladies and gentlemen, I love everybody, is where Baptists come from. Okay, this is, this is where, these are your fathers. The, the Radical Reformation and, and the Anabaptists are where Baptists come from, where most evangelicals actually come from, and, and that is something that I don't make fun of. It's serious, and I think more, more people who are Baptists and evangelicals should learn about the history of that, because they're, they're opposed to, they're the church and state separation guys, Right, they're they're uh, the rebaptizing guys. They're the the credo Baptist guys. They they throw off anything and everything that smells of Rome, and and it's had a huge effect on Christianity, and and they're a serious bunch. Zwingli is one of them, and we'll talk about him next year. Okay, so Carl's that uh, it brought Luther out of hiding so that he could address the problem, and Luther's way of addressing the problem was kill them all, and they did. So he, he came back, he, he took his place at Wittenberg, and he began to reform the liturgy of the church. That was his big project. So he wrote songs, he created what we call the Lutheran liturgy system, which is extremely influential even in the CRC to this day. All, if you go to Europe, I mean, you go over there, and it smells of Lutheranism. <laughs> because all the reformed guys in Europe learned how to worship from Luther. Um, and unless you, ha unless you go to England and then you go to America, where you get rid of all of that popery, um, you don't really worship any other way. All the Europeans worship like Lutherans, uh, if you're Reformed at all, and it still has a huge effect on all of us. So the Eucharist, the hymnal, everything, everything changed. Okay, so now I'm getting very close to the end, I promise. We're going to talk about one of the greatest marriages in the history of mankind. So Martin would get letters from all kinds of friends that he had already had. One of them was from a woman named Catherine and her associates at a monastery. They were nuns, and they had become Lutherans, and they desperately wanted to leave the nunnery, but they were locked there because um, they weren't allowed to leave. And so Luther hatches this unbelievable scheme of hiding them in fish barrels and allowing them to escape, escape the nunnery. And all of these nuns did escape in fish barrels. You can imagine how that smelled for three days, riding through the German woods. And they came to Wittenberg, and then uh, Luther started this program of marrying them all off or finding them jobs. And so he helped all of the nuns that he escaped. And there was one extremely intimidating nun named Catherine who they could not find a husband for. <laughs> because she was so intense. And she said, actually, there was a, a friend of Martin Luther's, um, and she said, I will only marry you or Nicholas Van Amsdorf. I'll only take two husbands. So leave all those other schmucks behind. Uh, Nicholas was a famous reformer. She was like, I want a reformer husband. I will only take a reformer as a husband because God called me to be a reformer's wife. This, this was her argument. And so uh, Philip Melanchthon was like, you can't possibly marry, you're Martin Luther, you can't marry an escaped nun. Okay, there's limits to what God will even laugh at himself. Uh, and, and Philip thought it would actually hurt the cause. So Martin was like, fine. He was convinced by his father, who he was reconciled with, to marry Catherine. And he proposed to her, and the next day they were married. <laughs> 
And she considered it her high calling by God to be a reformer's wife. And let me tell you, their wedding present was a monastery. That she regularly had 30 students living there from the university. She had regular guests. Um, some of the things that she was involved in was raising um, cattle, breeding and raising cattle, cooking, gardening, running a small business to help provide for the growing family. She had six kids. Making beer was one of them. She was one of the greatest brewers in Germany, actually, because she learned it in the nunnery. And, and, people would, and Martin would complain that people were only coming to stay at his house because they wanted to drink his wife's beer, <laughs> which was true. <laughs> um, so, so, this is, so when huge plagues would sweep through Wittenberg, as a side hustle, Catherine would actually open a hospital that she would staff with nurses and supplies and, and later get paid by the state to run it, which is just hilarious to me. She's like, oh, let me help you out. And it really helped people, but she also was always able to make a buck, um, which, <laughs> which is good because Luther did not make very much money. So he was a very, they did not marry for love. This is the most important part. They got married and they were like, I don't love you and you don't love me in any kind of romantic way, but we're here about the kingdom business that God has given us. And they became two of the most affectionate people. Their letters are amazing. I've read a, a great number of them. They really, really, really came to love and admire each other a great deal. Martin was famous for his nicknames for his wife. One of them was the Morning Star of Wittenberg because she arose at 4 a.m. <laughs> before everyone else. He had other pet names. He called her the Lady of Zolsdorf, which was the name of their farm. He called her the Lady of the Pig Market. He called her Lady Luther. He called her My Lord Katie. That's, I think, one of the more common ones. He, he also called her My Empress. And my favorite, he called her My Rib which is where I got the nickname for my wife, Riblet. Uh, I read that before I even got married. I was like, that's a nickname right there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so they, they were a power dynamic couple from the very get-go. Uh, I have one, one letter. This, this is just, people don't believe this, but I have the book that shows the letter. It's printed. So he had chronic stomach problems. And I have a letter from Catherine uh, where she says you need to mix more hung uh, horse dung with your beer in order to get your stomach problems to go away, which I think is like so sweet because she's giving him advice. Uh, so medieval because the advice is terrible. <laughs> it's like, I think we've discovered what was giving him problems. <laughs> All right, so in 1525, Luther put out a pamphlet advising the German princes to wage war against the peasants, which they did, and they won. Uh, which lost him a lot of followers, but um, somehow it continued, the program continued. Um, so he was not able to go to the Diet of Augsburg, where they wrote the, the Lutheran Confession, the, the Augsburg Confession, which is an excellent confession. He wasn't there because he wasn't allowed to leave the fife where he lived because uh, otherwise uh, the emperor would put him to death. Everybody wanted to kill him, and if he ever left the land of his prince, he would be put to death. And so his ministry at this point becomes one of literature. He, he stopped traveling, he stopped visiting, he stopped attending things because he wasn't allowed to. One, one of the saddest things uh, in, his, later in his life was Luther and Zwingli got together because Luther was the re German Reformation, Zwingli was the Swiss Reformation, and they were starting to diverge even at those early days in 15, late 1520s. And they were like, well, let's get together and work this out. And, and they could not work out the Eucharist. Zwingli thought that it was merely a sign and symbol. 
Luther thought that he, he created this weird doctrine called consubstantiation where the, the God is, the real presence of God is above it, below it, in it, around it, but not it itself. It's very strange. Later, both Luther and Calvin, who became uh, pen pals, admitted that if it had been them, the Reformed Church and Lutheran Church wouldn't have divided. And, and I think that the, you could reconcile their, their views. Uh, Zwingli is wrong, by the way, and Luther is wrong. Calvin would later come along and, and, and describe the doctrine as it ought to be. And I think he could have worked out a deal with Luther where we wouldn't have, because it created all kinds of problems that all the Reformed churches were not on this together, essentially. Uh, they did not come, right, because you would have one, one place where, like, German reformers are fighting Swiss reformers who are fighting, and they're all fighting the Catholics. And it's like, guys, and it just goes to show you what kind of people they were raising, <laughs> what kind of church they were creating. Okay, so the last thing I'm going to say here is that the Eucharist controversy within Lutheranism and against between um, Lutherans and reformers is why we've never been on the same page. And, and as time has gone on, we've thrown off things that were Lutheran because they're Lutheran because we're not Lutherans. But, but there's a great deal about Lutheranism in, in, from its original beginning point that we ought to study. The liturgy we ought to study, the Augsburg Confession, uh, Luther's Catechism, his works, Melanchthon's works. There's lots of Lutherans who in the first and second generation were great, and it's unfortunate that we have this rift with them where we won't uh, study them. Um, Luther, lastly, was a state man through and through. He was the father of German nationalism. He was also the father of Lutheranism and modern German. He's also the father of modern marketing. And most people don't know this. There's a book called Brand Luther, of all things. And one of the reasons we know who Luther is is because he made the first iPhone. And what I mean by that is that the Gutenberg press was new, and he understood what it was. And he tailored everything that came out under his name very carefully. He would only work with the best printers, with the best paper, with the best ink, with the best machines, the best editors. He, had, he hired artists. This is partially why he was poor, who would do wood engravings so that his books were more beautiful than everyone else's. He, he would pay to have like, gold on the, outs, on the outside of the page. Like, he really crafted his brand very carefully. And partially, he wasn't just putting out the truth. He put out a way better product. Um, and and Brand Luther is the name of the book. If you ever want to find out how he, like, so all kinds of marketing geniuses along the way study Luther and how he was able to take this new technology, the Gutenberg Press, and, and use it so effectively. It, it, there's a lot to be learned. The last thing I'm going to say is that um, uh, he is an Erastian. Okay, so Erastians are people who think that the church is an arm of the government. So Lutheranism, one of the biggest problems with modern Lutheranism, is that the church is an arm of the state. This is just like Anglicanism, where the head of the, uh, the English church is the English crown. Uh, this is common. This is why we're, we have so much trouble with the Eastern Orthodox, because the Eastern Orthodox church is a part of the government. Okay? And anywhere that this happens, you have all kinds of problems. And, and Hitler was going to use Luther later to, to a great effect, because late in his life, he got cheated by, by He was always pro-Jewish until these guys cheated him. And then he came out and said some things that I will not repeat about Jews that Hitler printed later. And, and he was like, see, our father, Luther, who loves Jesus, hated Jews too, so you should hate Jews too. And, and that and his, his reaction to peasant revolts, there's a lot of things about Luther that are complicated. But he gave us beautiful songs. He gave us a beautiful liturgy. There was no Reformation without him. Um, we ourselves are obviously not Erastians 
because as the Reformation moved north into Holland and England and then to America, we, we developed sphere sovereignty where we understand the state and the church are different but co-equal and they're working together. One doesn't work for the other one. So Martin Luther died in the year 1546 on February 18th, surrounded by his wife and his children. Uh, he was a beloved man. Uh, several, one son went on to be a lawyer, much to his grandfather's uh, joy. <laughs> one of his sons studied theology but never became a pastor. Uh, it's very interesting that Martin Luther is like a lot of famous theologian pastors. None of his sons went into the church. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to just do with how much controversy his father had. Uh, but he, without Luther, there is no Reformation. Without the Reformation, there's no Calvinism. There's no America, as I was saying in my sermon earlier, because different, right? I mean, how um, this is where we understand Western Protestantism. Anywhere the Catholic Church went in the world, South America, say, um, the nations that are there are not as fruitful as the nations that Protestant, Northern, Western Europeans developed. And this is something that I, I used to say all the time. It makes me a little nervous now. There's someone outside the door listening uh, to say this kind of thing. But without Luther and the Germans and, and spreading the gospel and training all those people, there would have been no Reformation. There would have been, in my opinion, no North America and no America and no us sitting here enjoying this beer. Thank you. Woo! Nice. So Joel's going to lead us in one more song, and then Byron's going to pray for us. Uh -huh. yeah.